Well, it was two years ago today that I learned that D'Angelo had been arrested. A lot of people learned on the night before on what is today, the 25th. A lot of people learned on the 24th and there was a lot of not celebrating, but acknowledging the anniversary date yesterday. I know I sent out an email to folks that subscribed to my blog, just letting them know, yeah, we're hitting a big marker. That is two years is pretty incredible and haven't heard a thing about his health in jail. Uh, we have heard that the next hearing, so we were supposed to have a hearing next week on April 29th, but that's not happening instead because uh, courts are basically closed here in Sacramento. So instead, they have rescheduled that hearing. That was for the motion to dismiss and the demurrer. That has been pushed to June 29th. Yeah, that's two more months. You know, I want to do this podcast and I want to follow the case, but there's like not much to follow right now. Although we have a lot to go through uh, in regard to the ALSIP stuff, which we're going to get back to today. But I'm also working on some interviews. So I think that will uh, be interesting in the meantime and give us some more points of view about what's happening here. But I cannot believe how this pandemic has uh, turned everything upside down. So I think we're having a hearing on June 29th. The preliminary hearing, the big, the, the pretrial thing that we've been waiting for, that has to be completely rescheduled. And as the prosecution described it to me, because there are other court cases that have been delayed that have a time constraint, you know, like you have a right to this and a right to that. Some of those cases now will proceed ahead of us because they are extremely timely and have to, and basically are behind. The preliminary hearing isn't, there's no big deal thing going on other than, other than all of our witnesses keep getting older. And of course their health is at risk as we have this pandemic going on. And I know I, for one, am really concerned about Dr. Speth, who's the forensic investigator from Ventura. He's 84. I'm still going to try to do an interview with him. He can't talk about the case, but he can talk about a lot of other things that I think are really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to get back in touch with him shortly to do that interview. But we don't have a date for the preliminary trial. So it's so interesting, those of us that talk amongst ourselves, the survivors that talk, we kind of chuckle because, you know, the defense came in and asked for a continuance till next January. <laughs> At the rate we're going, as they say, we may actually be really close to that. Does that mean that we're going to see any kind of a different defense? I doubt it. I hope they're making good use of the time because once again, things break D'Angelo's way, don't they? That's the part that probably chaps me the most. So, I don't like to think about it because it pisses me off, but uh, the reality is, yeah, he's getting yet another break. I guess you could argue, is it a break when he's sitting in a jail cell by himself? But that he deserves, so I'm not really worried about that. I just mean, I am so tired of him having things kind of break his way over and over again. So there's where we stand. That's the brief update, just to catch everybody up. Happy anniversary, uh, whatever that's for. It's been two years. I keep that running clock on my blog because it just reminds me that he's been locked up. And as far as I know, he still hasn't talked to family or anything. I don't know, maybe he writes them letters, I don't know. But wow, like their lives just changed so significantly. Anyway, I kind of want to say whose hasn't. I feel like mine's changed so significantly too. So we're going to go back in time once again. Uh, we've, we've met the Reverend Michael, and we, have, we know poor Mr. Alsip, who didn't do this crime, has churned through attorneys and somewhere along the way he got 
um, Hanawalt as his attorney. Uh, I think it's Dick Hanawalt is his name. And I cannot find in my book of when that happened. Although, interestingly, there is one page blank in here as if I left it blank to hold something. And I don't have it in the book. It's not like you know, just not, just didn't get put away. I don't know what happened, but there might have been an article I missed at some point. Um, and, and when I say I, I really mean my mom was so great about just stacking these up for me so when I'd come home, I could go through them. Okay, so it's February 1st, 1982 now. So we've moved through the year of the murder, 1980. We have moved through 1981, which in which we arrest a suspect. And now we're all the way to February if you recall, everybody was like, we can't get this. This thing shouldn't take much time. This is a couple days. What's going on here? No, no, no. No, no, no. I think if it has the Smiths touching it, it's going to be complicated, messy, and take forever. So here's the first article that's from February 1st, 1982. Again, by our good friend, Greg Zaroya. Oh, by the way, several of you gave me information about Greg. I have tried to call him and left a message, but I didn't get a call back. But I'm, you know, I'm going to still try because I think that would make an awesome interview. And I don't, maybe I freaked him out leaving the name Jenny Smith. Who knows? But I think that would just make a cool interview. So if I, I'm still trying, I don't want to let you know I'm still trying on that front because I just think it would be really interesting. All right, here we go. Pastor Smith's case rolled, roll, let me do this again because it's not rolled. It's R-O-L-E, not even R-O-L-L. Pastor Smith, pastor's Smith, oh God, this is why it's a bad head. It's a bad headline. Pastor's Smith case role backed. There you go. The pastor's role in the Smith case has been backed. No confidentiality violated, colleague says. The interim minister of the Ventura Missionary Church has assured his congregation that the role of an associate minister played in the police investigation of the Lyman Smith murder case did not involve any violation of confidentiality. During the same announcement made in the th- in three morning church services on January 24th, the Reverend, Reverend C. Leslie Miller asked members not to talk to the Reverend Don Michael about his part in the investigation. This has been a very distressing situation for Pastor Michael, Miller told the congregation. The defense attorney representing Joseph Alsip Jr., 33, the man accused of murdering prominent attorney Smith and his wife Charlene, said earlier this month that he suspected Michael might pay- play a key pro- might be a key prosecution witness. Michael is an associate minister who handles family counseling at the church. Okay, the bodies of Smith when his wife were found in the bedroom of an expensive hillside home, blah, blah, blah. We know that Ventura Ventura attorney Richard Hannawell. Well, see, this is, I don't know when he joined the team because I don't have an article about that, but uh, we'll keep pushing on. Ventura attorney Richard Hannawell said that Alsip counseled Michael we counseled with Michael weeks after the Smith killing, and according to what Michael told police, made some kind of admission to the minister. But Hannah Walt has contended that Michael's interpretation of what occurred is wrong. Michael has refused to comment about his connection with the police, but he has not denied his involvement. After the Sunday, uh, but the Sunday after a Free Press article, Star Free Press article reported that Michael's alleged role in the police investigation, Miller made his announcement before the congregation. Undoubtedly, many of you have read the newspaper article concerning the Smith murder case, Miller said to a church to church members. I find it necessary to inform you that Pastor Michael's involvement in the investigation of this crime was with the full knowledge and approval of Dr. Leonard DeWitt, former head pastor of the church, and church leaders. 
Also, it's important for you to know that all information given to the authorities by Pastor Michael was with the signed permission of the person now accused of the crime, Miller said. There is no violation of confidence whatsoever, so I'd like you to keep that in mind. Why Alsip would sign a waiver allowing police to talk to Michael after counseling with the pastor is not known. Hanawalt has conceded that a waiver exists, but he has refused to talk about it. The waiver would have been signed before Hanawalt took the case last month. Ha! Okay, now we know he took it in January. And the reason I keep bringing up Dick Hanawalt or Richard Hanawalt is he is... He is colorful. Like, this was before we had Kardashians and OJ and all that. This guy was one of, is, well, was one of those kind of attorneys. Like, he had a reputation for being loud, obnoxious, over the top, um, would work the media, everything you would expect from a defense attorney of that ilk. He is of that ilk. So that's why uh, it's interesting that I don't have exactly when he came over and if he took this pro bono or how it worked. And anyone with resources that could figure that out, I would love to know the scoop. But that's why I keep wondering, like, when did that happen? Here we go. During Miller's announcement before the congregation on January 24th, he asked that the church members not talk to Michael about his involvement. I am requesting that everyone refrain from interrogating him or attempting to engage him in conversation regarding this matter. Please keep this request in mind, Miller said. After Alsip's arrest in November, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. If convicted of the allegations, he could face the death penalty. A preliminary hearing is scheduled for March 1st. Okay, so that's, that is that, that's a short article from February 1st. Then we go on to February 17th, and guess what? Here's the headline. And this doesn't even have a byline this time. Judge postpones hearing for Alsip. With both defense and prosecutors, prosecution attorneys seeking delays. A judge Thursday, Tuesday, postponed the preliminary hearing for murder suspect Joseph Alsip Jr., who is charged with killing attorney Lyman R. Smith and his wife Charlene. Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt said he needed more time to prepare for the preliminary hearing. Prosecutor Pete Casoris said he was busy just beginning a trial about another murder case, that of 77-year-old George Michael Matisse, an Oxnard man charged with murdering his girlfriend. Visiting Judge Norris Goodwin Visiting Judge Norris Goodwin, that means he was a visiting judge, reset Alsip's preliminary hearing, which is a hearing during which a judge decides whether there is enough evidence to hold over a trial, from March 1st to March 29th. He also accepted an agreement reached between the defense and prosecution, which stated that if Matish murder trial is still in progress by March 29th, the Alsip preliminary hearing can be postponed a second time to April 16th or April 19th. Alsip, a real estate agent and local developer who was a business partner of the Slane Smith at one time, is currently being held without bail. Part of the agreement for the delay Tuesday was that Hannah Walt would not bring a motion for a bail hearing for his client. You understand this is going to keep you in jail for a while, Goodman asked Alsip Tuesday. Yes, sir, Alsip replied. You're agreeable, the judge required? Yes, sir. Alsip has been in jail since his arrest in November on two counts of first-degree murder. His arrest came 20 months after the bodies of Smith and his wife were discovered in their expensive hillside home. If convicted, Alsip could face death, death penalty. Okay, it's, this is interesting to me because he went in in November. He's agreed to go ahead and let this go on for at least a month, if not six weeks. He's going to stay in jail. We all know he wasn't guilty. Like, why? why? Why is he so affable? Why is he so easygoing about this? I would be so pissed. I mean, this is, this is his freedom and this is his reputation. 
and this is him going through lawyers and everything. It's just stunning to me that he was willing to just put up with potentially being jailed for another six weeks before we even get going on this case. Also, at some point, and I ha- I don't think I've brought this up yet, but I think this is about what happens. Yeah, the spring of 1982. So I was at UC Davis, and I remember that I was in, this isn't like high school, so I was in class at Davis, um, and I was studying, I was liberal arts studying rhetoric, shocking. Rhetoric is like study of language and words and things, not like linguist, but like persuasion and influencing. So I remember being in Olson Hall, which is what it, where my major took place, and somebody came rushing in and they said that the administration, I think it was like the administration, I want to say the office needed to see you, but there is not an office in college, that's in high school. But basically, somebody was trying to find me, and they had literally found me in a class. So it, and it, it's not like high school when your parents would come get you, or you had a dentist appointment or something, and they'd come get you. Like in college, that is terrifying. The first that they're trying to find you, and then that they need to talk to you right away. So when I went out, then I was greeted by a police officer who said that someone had called from my apartment where I lived and had seen somebody sitting out there waiting and waiting. And they wondered if it was that they, I guess they asked or something and said they were waiting for Jennifer Carroll and they did not want me to go home because they were really scared for me that I would go home with protection. So I did go home with protection and found out that the person who had been essentially stalking my apartment was an investigator for Hannah Walt. So it was somebody working for Um, Joe Alsip, an investigator on his team that was waiting to talk to me in Davis about, I guess, about, um, I don't remember the conversation with him, honestly. I suspect the only thing I would have known is, you know, my last conversation with them at the house the week before. I would have known what I cleaned when I went into the house, and I would have known things about patterns of behavior, kind of, not a lot, but kind of. So, it just was the scariest thing, though, to have this guy stalking. Like, what a bad way to do it. Couldn't he have just called and, like, said, hey, let's talk? No, no, no. Much better to stalk me. Your parents have been murdered, but we're going to stalk you just to make sure you're breathing. Yeah, it was pretty scary. It scared my friends a lot, too. Okay, so that's in the same time, because now we're talking. Now we have go all the way. We've gone from February 1st to the 17th. Now we're going to slide all the way to February 27th, or, I'm sorry, 25th. Again, in 1982, this is a bylined article by Greg. Money motivates murder case transfer. Oh, hmm, what's happened? What's this about? Ventura County court officials took some unusual steps Wednesday to simplify procedures in the case of a Ventura businessman accused of killing a prominent Ventura attorney and his wife. The presiding judges of the county's superior and municipal courts agreed to transfer the case of Joseph Alsop Jr. from the lower municipal court to superior court. Alsip is charged with the 1980 bludgeon slayings of attorney Lyman Smith and his wife Charlene. Felony cases are not usually transferred from the lower lower court to the higher court until a defendant is ordered during a preliminary hearing to stand trial. Preliminary hearings are held in municipal court and Alsip is not scheduled until March 29th. But Municipal Court Administrator Officer James Fox said the special step was taken to simplify the handling of defense requests for money. Hmm, interesting. Alsip has been declared indigent, and because this is a capital crime, he is entitled to state funds to pay for investigators and other experts required in the preparation of a defense. Such costs in non-capital cases involving indigents would be paid by the county. 
The attorney for Elsip, who was declared an indigent by a municipal court judge in December, despite his active role in county real estate developments, is seeking the state funds. It was the opinion of, of our joint courts that, at least from an administrative standpoint, it would be more efficient to handle it, the request for state funds, from one place, Fox said. It saves double booking, double record keeping, and all kinds of problems that come with these kinds of things, he said. I think it's a splendid example of cooperation between the courts, Fox said. This is the first time in my knowledge that we've done this, he added. He, ca he cautioned that similar steps may not be taken in a similar case in the future. By the way, this is so interesting to me because we've seen a few things now with what's happening here where um, if you recall that they, uh, they let Alsip do that weird thing where his real estate would go in kind of like an escrow to pay back the state if he was declared indigent. Now they're streamlining uh, how money works between the lower court and the, and the superior court. It's, I, I'm, I don't, I wonder if we can still collaborate like this today. I suspect this is the benefit of it being in the 80s and that where things were still small town and decisions could be made by the people who wanted to make the decisions instead of bureaucracies and um, tons of comp complexity. I bet they couldn't make these kind of decisions today. Okay, back to the article. Uh, let's see. Venture, account, Venture attorney Richard Hanawalt, who represents ALSIP, said it would be seeking more than $10,000 to begin and probably more to begin with and probably more later. He has previously said that little or no money has been forthcoming from ALSIP, who was in jail without possibility of bail since Hanawalt took the case in January. Really? He's not getting any money? Where would he get money from? He's in jail. Okay, sorry. According to documents filed Wednesday and signed by presiding judges on bo of both courts, Alsip's preliminary hearing will be assigned out of presiding Superior Court Judge Jerome Berenson's court. Berenson can assign the preliminary hearing to any judge from either court. But all motions and matters to be heard in Alsip's case will be conducted before Superior Court Judge Lawrence Storch, according to the document. This situation may change because Storch's indicated that since Mrs. Smith once had been a secretary, he would probably have to disqualify himself from hearing any proceedings in the case. Boom. And that's why we knew Judge Storch. I knew there was, I knew he was a family friend. I did not realize that Charlene had worked for him. So yeah, talk about your small towns there. There's where we start to bump into each other and overlap. Okay. So now this, everything goes forward into March 17th, because remember we have this um, th this delay going on while that other hearing was gonna happen. So, and we were gonna check back in on that on March 29th, but we do have an interesting article that comes up on March 17th, and it has to do with this hypnosis thing. Now, I know I've mentioned like I wasn't hypnotized. I'm really glad I wasn't hypnotized. I'm not sure I can be hypnotized. Game on, challenge on, everybody. But I, I, I'm not sure I'm a good candidate for that. But it's interesting because this first story here in March 17th is about hypnosis. So here we go. Hypnosis ruling may weaken the Smith killings case. Prosecuting the man, it's Greg again, by the way. Prosecuting the man charged in one of Ventura's most widely publicized homicides is clearly a difficult job that only seems to be getting tougher. <laughs> no kidding. In the months that followed the brutal slayings of Ventura attorney Lyman Smith and his wife Charlene, police uncovered an important piece of evidence, an alleged admission to the crime. But prosecutors may be hard-pressed to prove that the admission is legally admissible or whether it is even valid. 
According to a long court document filed by the district attorney's office Tuesday, the admission was made by the man accused of the murders, real estate developer Joe Alsup Jr., 34, ah, he's had a birthday, during a counseling session with a Ventura minister. Since, ah, that's why I wasn't hypnotized, because this happened in counseling. Since it involves a private conversation with the minister, it could come under the jurisdiction of the rarely cited clergyman penitent privilege. Let me just say that again. It's called the clergyman penitent, P-E-N-I-T-E-N-T, privilege. So that is the rarely cited clergyman penitent privilege. Furthermore, since Alsip was hypnotized by police before he made his alleged admission, okay, wait a minute, I thought that was true. He was hypnotized by police. What is even happening? Okay, furthermore, since Alsip was hypnotized by police before he made this alleged admission, and because the state Supreme Court ruled last week that hypnotized-induced information is inadmissible in court, this might further threaten the prosecution's efforts to cite Alsip's alleged comments as evidence. Whoa, you guys, that is some real-time stuff there. In March of 1982 is when the Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, ruled hypnotized-induced information was inadmissible, which is interesting because if you remember, there was that whole false memory thing going on and people were coming to court with evidence from hypnosis. And so I thought it was um, actually later, but it was earlier. I, I, but I do remember that being a big, a big deal. So, ha, huh, we're really contemporary in this case. Okay, Alsip was arrested in November, although he had been identified as a suspect as long as a year before his arrest, a period of time that possibly suggests how patently deliberate and cautious the police were in developing the case. Their efforts and those of the district attorney's office will undergo the ultimate litmus test during a preliminary hearing for Alsip that is tentatively scheduled for March 29th. A judge will decide at the hearing whether is, there is sufficient evidence to order Alsip to stand trial. Alsip, a former business partner of Smith's, was one of many witnesses interviewed by police directly after the murder. Like other would-be suspects, he was given a polygraph test and placed under hypnosis so authorities could explore his memory. Ugh, feels a little creepy, but okay. Alsip later reported to the poli- later reported that the police indicated to him he had passed the polygraph. Then, in June of 1980, after a meeting with the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers, the chaplain of that organization met privately with Ventura Police Lieutenant Randy Adams. The chaplain, the Reverend Donald L. Michael, is an associate pastor of the huge Ventura Missionary Church. According to a court document, Michael told Adams that he had been receiving threatening phone calls and he thought the threats were because Michael had information about a homicide. Okay, so Michael is the chaplain for the Fellowship of Christian Peace Officers, the cops. He met privately with the lieutenant. He's been getting threatening phone calls because he had information about a homicide. The same Reverend Michaels that is also from the Ven- the huge Ventura Missionary Church, which was just down the street from Dad and Charlene's house. Okay. Whoa. Just whoa. Adams, this, okay, Adams is who Michael went to, the police officer went to. Adams pressed Michael for information, but the pastor declined until several days later after he had had an opportunity to confer with church officials. Eventually, Michael told authorities what Alsip had allegedly confided to the minister during a counseling session May 21 or 22 of 1980. 
Okay, so this is a counseling session that's just about six weeks after Dad and Charlene were killed. According to Michael, Alsip talked about the business he had about a business dispute he had had with Smith and how he was glad Smith was dead. Then he made veiled ref- made veiled reference to taking part or at least being on hand when the murders were committed. Michael told Alsip suddenly Michael told police Alsip suddenly cut the counseling session short and commented that he had said too much. In the weeks that followed, Michael received threatening phone calls. One caller reportedly told Michael if you want to remain healthy, you better not reveal what was told to you about the Smiths. I want to giggle, but that's inappropriate. Maybe I shouldn't have read it like I was some kind of cartoon character. Let me try that again. One caller reportedly told Michael, if you want to remain healthy, you better not reveal what was told to you about the Smiths. On March 25th, 1981, Alsip and then defense attorney Paul Clinton met with the Ventura police. Alsip was asked to sign a waiver allowing police to interview Michael. Clinton advised them that he need not sign, but Alsip, who had cooperated with the police on every occasion up until that time and who said he had nothing to hide, signed the waiver. Days later, after Michael was interviewed, Alsip tried to revoke the waiver. The complicated series of circumstances raises a variety of legal questions. One, was the session properly confidential? That's weird. Was the session properly confidential? If it was, was the clergyman penitent privilege properly waived? And C, could the waiver be revoked? We could. We should not stumble into... Oh, wait, sorry, these are a lot of words here. We should not stumble into such entanglement by allowing the defendant, Alsip, here to use what the clergy, clergyman penitent privilege as a sword rather than as a shield, legal arguments can included in a prosecutor's document conclude, enforcing the privilege in the present case would allow the defendant to put a clergyman in fear for his life and use the power of the state to insulate himself from responsibility simply because the victim is a clergyman. Now, I'm confused. Hang on a second. Because we shouldn't stumble into such entanglement by allowing ALSIP to use that clergyman penitent privilege as a sword rather than a shield. So, But I don't understand because... I don't know how that would be the sword. He would somehow be harming Michael by using that. But the thing is that all the evidence Michael has against Alsip is negative. So if anything, using trying to rescind the waiver would protect Alsip. If the session was properly confidential, I, I don't know what that means because if you're in private, isn't that confidential? I mean... Why, why wouldn't a session be confidential? This is very, very messy. Uh, and we're not even into the hearing yet. And already it's really, really messy. So um, I'm not even sure who that last quote was from because it's, it's contributed to a legal argument included in a prosecutor's document. Um, so I guess it's the prosecutor saying that, that we shouldn't stumble into such an entanglement by allowing the defendant to use that clergyman penitent privilege as a sword rather than a shield. Enforcing the privilege, meaning allowing it to exist in the present case, would allow the defendant to put a clergyman in fear for his life and use the power of the state to insulate himself from responsibility simply because the victim was a clergyman. See, that seems odd. I'm not sure why that would uh, he 
what it what is giving him a privilege. I think I'm I'm not sure how that helps the defendant. Maybe it has to do with the threatening phone calls, but they can't prove who made them. So, hmm, very confusing. Okay, so um, you can imagine. By the way, can you just imagine? Like this is the stuff we're reading again. The family we do not have inside scoop. We are literally learning this stuff just like this. This is essentially. The, the reason this is so important to me to go back to these articles, because this is what it was like back then, trying to make sense out of everything that was going on and trying to understand who did what to whom in what order. We didn't know there was a serial killer. We didn't know that it was or wasn't Alsip. Um, I mean, I knew I had, I, I've always felt like it wasn't him regardless, but uh, we didn't know. So this is the same information we were getting as a family. So I just want to, I think that's important just to, I want to keep bringing you back to that because that's really why this is so interesting to me. Now we move to March 29th, and this is just a brief little column. So the, if you recall, this is when we were supposed to get on with it. No, 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 we're not going to get on with it. Smith Killings hearing put off for three weeks with the prosecutor in the midst of a jury trial and the defense attorney seeking more time for preparations, the preliminary hearing for murder defendant Joseph Alsip was put off this morning for nearly three weeks. Alsip 34 is charged with killing Lyman and Charlene. Um, the preliminary hearing, which would have determined whether there was enough evidence to warrant a trial for Alsip, was scheduled to be heard today, but both Deputy District Attorney Pete Casoris and the, pro the prosecutor in this case and the defense attorney Richard Hanawalt had agreed in February that the case could be delayed if necessary. Since Hanawalt says he needs more time to prepare his defense for the preliminary hearing and Casoris is in the midst of prosecuting another murder case, the hearing has now been postponed until April 16th. The preliminary hearing, often routine in many felony cases, may be crucial in this case since the prosecution will probably be faced with legal testing of some of its most important evidence, including an alleged admission by the defendant. Court documents filed in the district attorney's office later uh, earlier this month detail what is alleged to be an admission of participation in the murders by Elsip that were made to a Ventura minister weeks before the after the killings. The evidence will probably be legally attacked by the defense from several directions. One possible assault will be decide a recent Supreme Court decision that renders hypnosis-induced evidence as inadmissible. Elsip was hypnotized by the police weeks before he made the alleged admissions to the minister. So I think what they're going to argue here, I mean, their point is, as they get ready to argue this, is that the police may have put suggestions in Alsip's mind when they hypnotized him and then that is what he started to believe. Uh, it's very, very interesting. So now as I literally turn the page because we begin now with, it looks like things are starting because the headline is one that I remember well. Ventura Boy tells of finding slain dad this is from April 21st, 1982, and we have a new writer. Um, Bob Holt is showing up now as our court reporter. Um, not court reporter, you know, sitting in the courtroom. I mean the reporter that's covering the court case. So I'm going to just dive into this one. This one might be hard because it's about Gary, my brother. Uh, and, then, and then when I come back for the next pod, I'm going to dive right in because this thing's starting to roll now but let me just go ahead and give you the highlights of the of day one and of course they started with my brother and I wonder if that's going to happen with D'Angelo I don't know uh, 
No, they said they're going to, no, that's not going to start with Gary because they're going to try to use these people that are most at risk health-wise right now. They want to get them on the uh, on the the stand as fast as possible. In fact, when we met with the prosecution, that's one thing they said is they just need to fast track some of these witnesses that were at risk of losing just just because of time. So here we go. This is in Ventura, April 21, 1982. Ventura boy tells of finding slain dad. I figured something was wrong. I saw some red stuff where the head would have been. I picked up the cover and saw the side of his head and his shoulder. Thus did 14-year-old Gary Smith describe finding the bodies of his father, Lyman Smith, and his stepmother, Charlene, in their East Ventura home. Gary, alert and composed, was the leadoff witness today for the prosecution at the preliminary hearing for Joseph Alsop Jr., 33, we know he's 34, Ventura, who is charged in the couple's murders. The hearing before Municipal Court Judge Bruce Clark is expected to last several days. The Smiths were killed at their residence March 13th by blows from a piece of wood. Smith, a prominent Ventura lawyer, was reported to be in line to be appointed a Superior Court judge by Governor Edmund G. Brown, Jr. when he was killed. Alsip, a former business associate of Smith, was not arrested until 20 months later. The prosecution is seeking the death penalty. Gary, who lived with his mother, testified that he had gone to his father's house at 573 High Point Drive the afternoon of March 16, 1980, a Sunday, to mow the lawn. He tried the side door to the garage, but it was locked. He went to the front door and knocked. There was no answer, but to his surprise, the door was unlocked. The youth said he entered and started down the hall when I heard a buzzing noise. I wasn't sure what it was. He continued to walk down the main hall, eventually realizing the sound was an alarm clock in the bedroom. And then I saw two bodies in the bed, and they looked like they were asleep. Gary testified that he retreated down the hall at this point because I thought they were just getting up, and I didn't want them to get mad at me. But the buzzing went on, he said, and he figured something was wrong. He then approached the bed and turned off the alarm. He never did see Charlene, he said, although she was in bed beside her husband. They had been dead about three days, and their hands were trussed behind them. When he saw his father's bloodied head and realized he was dead, he tried to call his mother, but she wasn't home. So he called an emergency number. I think my dad and mom are dead, he told the person who answered. When the operator asked the house number, he had to go outside and get it. The voice then told him him to go outside and wait for the police. He went out, sat on the wall, he said, and soon the officers came. Under cross-examination by defense attorney Richard Hanawalt, Gary talked about the way the sofa cushions in the living room had been tilted up. The way they were knocked about looked like it was the way somebody might do it to create the impression that they were looking for something, he said. It appeared to be a big fake. They went through there real quick, he said. Asked if he had ever seen Alsip before, he said he didn't think so. I recall the name, but not the face, he said. Okay, that's it. That's Gary's testimony. Um, We're going to dive into some big evidence in the next pod and where we in which we find out that um, Charlene was raped finally April 22nd 1982 they sure kept that quiet for an awful long time all right guys thank you so much for tuning in if you haven't subscribed please do it really helps me and I really appreciate you listening until next time